0: Marcus Cowkey here from the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I have Nick Chisnell to speak to me about financial services sales. Nick, can we have a couple of minutes on your background, who you serve and the kind of problems that you solve?
1: Yeah, certainly, Marcus. Good morning. I've been working in financial services for some time now, and um, my role as a a freelance trainer is to help people realise their potential, looking at development of them as individuals, but also processes that... um, Banks and building societies um, have from legacies from previous systems or previous companies that have come together. So my work tends to take me to the uh, major banks and building societies, but also independent financial advisors, mortgage advisors, working on assessment centers, advisor programs, supervisor programs. But I guess the, the crux of it is bespoke training on areas such as communication customer contact, sales process, and also product specifics, where there are issues dealing with areas such as difficult mortgage debt, professional advice, and other such areas that really help make them better communicators and better salespeople, really.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, let's just dive straight into some of the gnarly, nitty-gritty issues. The first question I have is the financial services industry has got a bit of a mixed reputation, and I'm curious why you believe that is. And what can be done in order to develop a strong, positive reputation in the space?
1: Yeah, it certainly has a very mixed reputation over the years. If I look at financial advice and regulation around that, you know, the regulation has changed a great deal over the years, but all with the same intent on protecting the customer and making sure the customer can understand what they're getting themselves into, because often um, they are sort of long-term financial issues that that we're talking about. I guess the mixed reputation for me comes from perhaps the the taboo of some of the subject. Is the advisor sort of pulling a rabbit from a hat to actually come up with what's the most suitable advice for a customer, or are they sort of taking the customer on a journey where they can understand what's going on, and so that both advisor and customer reach a fairly similar conclusion, which can then be met by a particular product. So I think a lot of the a lot of the reputation comes down to the the secrecy, if you like, of um, what's happening. and Obviously, there have been a number of very high-profile mis-selling scandals, which happen in every industry, unfortunately, which clearly can't go unnoticed.
0: I'm curious what you mean by the secrecy of what's happening. I think in,
1: if I go back a number of years, it was more that the, the advisor or the salesperson perhaps knows more than the customer and doesn't share as much with the customer. I think in the, in the last 10 years, a lot of that has turned around with um, much more of a collaborative approach with customers and advisors sort of talking more openly about everything and understanding a lot of what goes on. You know, with the, the advent of everything being online and seeing different products, then customers can really understand much more about the, the potential solutions before they even talk to an advisor.
0: Surely that's really more about being able to diagnose and ask questions and get the prospective customer or the existing client to tell their story, the advisor can match up suitable product with the client or prospect's aspirations, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. When we talk about selling or we talk about advising, then the more it is about talking to the customer and finding out you know, where the best fit is and where we can actually do business, then that's the, the only way to actually make a sale.
0: I mean, certainly from my experience of being a customer or a prospect, I've tended to find that the KYC, the Know Your Customer process, is extremely robotic, and it focuses on the intellectual rather than the emotional, which is the antithesis of selling. I'm curious to hear whether or not there have been any shifts in that space since the last time I suffered conversation with an IFA.
1: I would like to think they have. One of, one of the one of the big issues you talked about some of the, some of the sort of problems that I that I face is certainly people being process led uh, and filling in their fact find and just taking the the basic details and not exploring enough but yeah there is a lot more around the emotional side now in terms of you know what thing, what will happen to that particular customer if they do take out a particular product how that will impact them going forward what about changes in their lifestyle changes in their circumstances so I would like to think, certainly with the people I'm talking to, that there has been a, a shift to more focusing on the customer, focusing on their lifestyle, and how the financial services products actually fit in with their ongoing lifestyle.
0: How often do you find that salespeople are essentially on rails then, and they're trying to get through their process so they can get to the interesting bit where they can present, rather than <laughs> really um, helping the customer to feel like they've been fully understood i think there's
1: less certainly there's there's less of that if you look at what's happened with the larger institutions with the banks and the building societies over the the last 10 years or more there's been a lot of focus on on them in terms of streamlining their operations being a lot more under the microscope and i think they've gone more towards the side of well let's actually focus on the customer even more the process is there to tick the boxes to prove compliance and for some advice is that balancing act between you know am i good enough or am i confident enough to actually move forward and move out of the process to talk to the customer or uh, am i actually stuck following it just to make sure it's a compliant sale
0: interesting i mean what one thing that within Sandler is the critical importance of bonding and rapport making sure that throughout the relationship not just at the beginning of the conversation rapport exists and hmm feel comfortable with you human being to human being how are you humanizing the IFA in order that they because my experience has been quite painful it has been a while since I've gone to sort of classic IFA I do have an advisor and she's very good at doing the human side just curious what's being taught out there in terms of understanding personality types architecture graphics, all that kind of stuff, to really be able to understand the human being as a prospect?
1: From the work I do, it starts with sort of focus on the individual, so the individual salesperson or or advisor. So I I do work with some of the psychometric profiling so people can actually understand who they are. Insights is one I, I work with most to understand who they are and how they actually would like to act with people. Then looking at various influencing styles, as to the best way of actually communicating and how to actually adapt to different customers. But then when it comes to the actual customer interaction, I'm a firm believer in what actually happens at the start, the initial positioning and the setting of the scene. And then that, as you say, is followed through um, at every stage of the, the advice process in terms of positioning what's going to happen next, why it's happening, and then encouraging and allowing the customer to open up rather than just answer the question on the fact find.
0: Interesting. I am curious about something in that case. We use psychometrics as part of our process as well. We use it in the recruitment process as well as uh, dealing with existing teams. I'm curious to find out how effective you're finding it in terms of predicting whether or not an individual is going to work out well in the job.
1: I've not seen it or I've not used it because companies have normally gone through the recruitment process. So whether they've used it and follow it through from there. But certainly using it with people in role, it's given them much more self-awareness and an ability and confidence to actually move forward in an area they're comfortable with, but also tackle some of the areas they're not because they, they see the psychometrics as uh, quite a good pat on the back that says, you know, you are pretty good in this area, so keep doing that. But actually, now if you're good at that area, we can actually then focus on some of the other areas to actually make you a, a better advisor, a better salesperson.
0: This then brings me to the area of recruitment. What are the changes that you've seen happen over the past few years in order to improve the quality of salespeople or potential advisors in order to ensure that the standards of sales are improved?
1: I think recruitment still is still stuck in the it's the qualifications and whether you can talk of a good game at the actual interview. I know listening to some of your previous podcasts and. Um, there is still not much going on in terms of the habits and the behaviours that they'll need to exhibit when they're in the role. There's still not enough of that focused on the initial um, recruitment interview. So it is more about the individual. Whether they are capable of learning, that certainly does come up in the interview process. So that actually helps, but not enough about what they'll be expected to do so they can actually come into the job and hit the ground running.
0: Again, one of the things that I've seen in pretty much every industry, and I suspect financial services is similar, that the recruitment process tends to be, congratulations, you are one, now go out and sell. And there isn't a really good emphasis on proper onboarding, other than teaching people about product. They don't really spend time on the sort of minimum acceptable performance over the first 120 days to make sure that very specific standards of behavior are achieved and then following on from the onboarding process, very little emphasis on coaching and even less emphasis on career pathing. I'm curious to see what you're seeing in the industry there.
1: Taking on two aspects there. Firstly, from the advisor perspective, I would agree with you. It's very much they're into the role. They've got a lot of systems to get to grips with. They've got a lot of factory process to get to grips with. So actually, the customer content part of it whilst it's still focused on, can get left behind because actually we've got to get the fact finds done, we've got to get the systems right, we've got to make sure everything actually flows through the process. Um, so there's less emphasis on that customer contact, I think, from the advisors initially.
0: Sorry, Nick, is that because of compliance well, reasons?
1: I don't think necessarily just compliance reasons. I think it is just that um, a lot of the the big banks and building societies do have the systems that are such that they have to be filled in in a certain way, and there's lots of different systems often to go into. So I think it's a, it's a bigger beast than just actually talking to a customer and filling in perhaps a fact find on a piece of paper that can can be looked at and viewed and then actually taken forward.
0: Let's revisit the coaching question then. Managers who claim that they're too busy and they're stretched typically aren't coaching. If they were coaching; their people would be largely independent and self-functioning, a lot of supervisory or firefighting. And I, I, what I tend to describe managers as are either fire chiefs or arsonists. <laughs> so they're either trying to put out fires or they're setting them for themselves.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, very much so. And uh, Yeah, um, from the supervisor's perspective, the work I do does focus on you know, the first 100 days. You know, If you're a new supervisor coming into a role, what are you going to do in the first 100 days? You know, where's the focus on your customers, i.e., your staff and uh, your advisors. You know, where's that focus? Where are you going to take that? How are you going to move them from where they are now to where they need to be? So it's very easy in financial services is to run the desk. You know, that's all you do. You sit at your desk. You've got, very, you've, got a, you've got a team of advisors. If they're in the same location or remote, it doesn't seem to make any difference that um, coaching does seem to be the last thing on the list, unfortunately, because it's very easy to say to a, an advisor, well, look, you, know, you are an advisor. You've got the expertise, you've got the qualification, therefore I'll tell you to go and do something and off you go and do it. So the coaching does still get left behind, unfortunately.
0: That sounds to me like management by abdication. What's Mm -hmm. the turnover rate as a result of that? Yeah, I think that depends
1: on people's motivations for being in the role. When you look at, again, some of the larger institutions, then people can move around within the company So the financial advice is part of their uh, employment within that particular company, so they can move across to different areas. What financial advice, because of the regulation and because of the more complex processes sometimes involved, does give them some very good transferable skills within the company. However, if they are somebody who wants to give advice and wants that to be their career, then that's where the um, better sellers, better advisors, can then look to move on outside the company so you can lose some good talent away from these businesses.
0: What's the average lifespan of an advisor coming in fresh for their first job in the industry and what percentage actually make it into making a living rather than just simply being churned and burned?
1: That's a very interesting question. I haven't seen the sort of latest figures on those stats. I think it does depend company to company, but um, I would say from my experience, maybe Four to five years would be a, an average lifespan of an advisor. So working in the larger companies it's not necessarily a, a career for life, as it could be if you were working for yourself or working in that field.
0: Because staff turnover is hideously expensive, and mm. wrong hires tend to be the highest hidden cost in any organization in sales because of the lifetime customer value that's lost when you send out a poorly trained or incompetent salesperson and they leave money on the table or they lose the customer and that then goes to a competitor you lose all the referrals you lose the cross sells upsells and i'm curious to see if there are any moves afoot within the industry particularly within large institutions to ensure that that's reduced or minimized
1: there's definitely a desire to minimize those sort of feelings and those sort of impacts on the company so there, there is a lot of focus on keeping the staff. It's whether their processes and whether their immediate targets allow them to do that. And when I say allow, you know give them the the opportunity to focus on that without having to worry about the rest of the business going on. So it is more down to the individual and whether they want to stay as part of that particular team.
0: But that's interesting because what that's triggered in my mind is that most managers see recruitment as a chore rather than the number one central function of their role and so they're not building a bench they're not always recruiting they recruit as a reactive knee jerk reaction to a vacancy or a gap in their team and they see it as a chore and what people forget is the cost of hiring it isn't just the interview time and the recruitment fees that might need to be paid but also the opportunity cost, the ramp-up cost, the training cost, and it's a false economy where people are operating on the sink or swim kind of premise. So again, I'm fascinated to see what's being done around, for example, accountability, behavioral cookbooks, if you like, to ensure that the individual has their corporate goals tied to their personal motivations. And there are consequences for not meeting those behavioral goals and that the leader or the team, uh, the manager, is also part of that accountability cadence to make sure that everybody is fully committed to getting better and to advancing.
1: In the sort of organizations I'm, I'm talking to, then the recruitment process is normally separate from the actual sales manager. So... The manager will get the member of staff yes they will they will nurture them they will work with them but because the recruitment process is normally a separate entity when they get the individual then that recruitment side is finished and now they're now they're with the manager therefore if there hasn't been that connection between the individual and their goals and the company goals it will probably then just drift into well you're now part of the team this is what we expect
0: okay but that to me Sounds like a management deficiency. What are managers in these organizations being trained in around uh, coaching, team development, individual development?
1: yeah there is a lot of training that goes on in that area, and it is around you know personal development and um, if you look at the values of various companies, there's always one around personal management and personal development, so there is a focus on it, but the results will speak for themselves. So if the results are going well, we may not focus quite as much on the personal development. So it's a strange situation where more work seems to be done with those that are middling to not doing so well than the actual top performers. So the the top performers can get left to their own devices and therefore miss out on some of the coaching to make them extra special performers, if you like.
0: Isn't that madness?
1: You know, there are various quotes that um, come up from time to time. There's a couple that sort of really resonate with me one in terms of training people so they can leave and then treat them well enough so they don't leave which is prevalent in a lot of the larger companies but there is one one i've seen recently during the rounds in terms of what happens if we develop people and they leave well that's not so much of a problem it's more a problem if we don't train them and don't develop them and they stay and um, again it's where are people in that sort of across those two parameters really you know are they just getting by are they just happy to go along with the flow or are they actually focused on their career and wanting to develop to be the best they can?
0: It's interesting. I mean, I tend to break salespeople down into winners, at leasters, and losers. The losers will typically churn out relatively quickly because they can't make a living, particularly in a commission-only type of role. But often, the managers will be people who like to be liked and avoid conflict, and they don't want the hassle of having to recruit. So they tolerate non-performance, and then they throw a huge amount of energy into that middle layer of mush and the mm. ones who can barely breathe unaided. You know, getting 30% out of someone who's already doing 120% of target is infinitely better than getting 30% out of someone who's doing 70% of target. Well, mm. Why is it that's tolerated within organisations?
1: The focus on the individual, it's much easier, I think, in a, in a large organisation to focus on the middle tier those that aren't performing as well or not performing at all, because if you do want to actually help somebody leave the organization, then there's a lot more paperwork, there's a lot more focus, there's a lot more time actually spent on saying, well, what have we done to help them achieve? And if they can't achieve, you know, where's our evidence to say they're not good enough? So that's, I think, why a lot of the top performers can go unnoticed and the middle and lower performers get all the focus. In my work, I think it boils down to what's the root cause of their performance. Is it attitudinal issues, is it skills, or is it knowledge? And as you were saying, Marcus, you know, managers wanted to avoid situations. Skills and knowledge are very straightforward areas to work on, but attitudinal areas are perhaps not so easy. When we talk of their, you know, the confidence of an individual, their belief and value systems, how interested they are in the subject matter, whether they won't do something or don't want to do something, you know, how do we actually deal with those issues which will have the biggest impact on their development?
0: This is really interesting because certainly with what we train, there are a number of issues that come to mind. The first is accountability. A lot of people see accountability as big brother, micromanagement, and it's in particular the middle air of mush, the at leasters. At least I'm doing 80% of my quota, at least I have a job. At least I have a, you know, a roof open that tend to push back against it. The ambitious top performers welcome accountability. It allows them to see their progress and it allows them to feed their ambition and drive to get better. Another aspect of this is the career path from being an advisor to a manager. Often I see top salespeople being promoted into management. And you lose a good salesperson, and you gain a terrible manager. That's what was done to them. Largely, yeah, you know, the fire chief and arsonist, or management by abdication. And they focus on what's easy—the skills and the product knowledge—and focusing on behavior, which is the one thing you can manage. You can't manage the results. That's impossible because they're mm-hmm. lag indicators, and they've already happened. You can track the results, and it's important to do that. But focusing on behavior is really key. And there's very little ramp up in terms of moving from salesperson to manager. And in my book, I think you probably need to be looking 18 months to two years in advance of and being able to identify somebody as a potential manager and then teaching them the skills and behaviors and attitudes that are required to be a successful manager. Coaching, training, the supervisory piece shouldn't really be a hefty part of their work, because if they've hired the right people and they're enabling them to get the best out of themselves, then there's very little actual management that's involved. They can focus on the really important stuff, recruitment, being strategic, helping with territory and account planning, helping them to work out specific client growth plans, and so forth. So again, I'm very curious to see why it is that that isn't happening.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of it does boil down to it's the, the easy thing to fix. There aren't enough conversations with people around you know, why they're doing the job they're doing, what their aspirations are, how does this job help them with their personal goals.
0: Isn't that a problem with senior management? If senior management aren't picking up on that, then there has to be the obvious question being asked, which is why not?
1: And that's certainly indicative of, of what I've seen in my employed career and in my career as a, a freelance trainer in terms of, I've seen that in, in lots of companies where you know the focus is on the job, the focus is on task at hand. Some companies are getting more used to actually working with their staff and um, the larger companies, if they see that, that member of staff coming in and want to keep that member of staff, then they will explore those areas. Sometimes outside of the current job, but explore them as a, an added extra, if you like, to keep that member of staff. If they don't carry on in this particular role, they can actually work somewhere else in the company. And so there is more focus there with some companies, which is actually paying dividends on stopping the recruitment cycle. But it doesn't always keep them in the advice role, which I think can be even more rewarding and allow them to sort of demonstrate and develop their skills even further before they move on.
0: Is there much role play uh, going on within these organisations where the manager is working with the individual advisor, helping them to work through different scenarios, pre-call planning, post-call debriefing, rehearsal?
1: There is when they get in front of me, because that's you know the, the lifeblood of actually going into a scenario. We can all talk a good game, but until we actually sit down and open our mouths, we don't know exactly what's going to come out and the way it's going to be taken by somebody else. So in short, no, there's not enough of that. And um, There's a lot of talking around the subject, then what would you do and how would you do it? But there isn't enough of actually, okay, I'll now be that customer. You, you're you. You know what you're going to do. I'll be the customer and let's see how you deal with my reactions. And I think there is the inherent fear in a lot of people is, I don't know what the customer's going to say. I'm not sure how I'm going to react to it. And I think the more practice we can do in those areas to actually see how would you react to different scenarios, the better because they will crop up with customers and I'm sure in everything you you talk about as well you know if you if you have a fear of something happening then pretty much that's going to happen in the next interview you have
0: this is really interesting because again it strikes me that the advisors don't appear to be taking much personal ownership for their own progression and because of the culture of the organizations that they're in it seems that they're waiting to be spoon-fed or told what to do is that a fair observation
1: Yes, I think it is It is within some companies. I think it depends on the ethos of the company and the the focus on the staff. There are Certainly, there's a few companies I work with where there's very much a, a collaborative approach with the staff, and so they are seen as you know the most important people, which I know is a, a phrase that goes around um, many a boardroom or many a, a staff meeting, but they are seen as the key people to actually make a difference with the customers. I think companies where they have um, very good approval ratings from their customers, they tend to get more of a focus on the individual, and therefore the individual is more willing perhaps to take on ownership for their own, their own development. It's a bit like the virtuous circle. You know, When something's going well, it's easier to add to it. But if it's the other way around, then I think it's very easy to just get stuck into a, a rut of actually waiting for, to be told what to do, waiting for something to happen. There's less of a desire, if you like, to sort of push the boundaries and and really fly as an advisor.
0: Interesting. So let me ask this: I mean, is there any form of personal ninety-day planning or any form of scorecarding that the individual is expected to go through in order to ensure that they're making they're advancing in terms of their competencies and their capabilities?
1: That's normally built into an annual review process, but. In terms of more the short term or the ones that are going to have the bigger impact, not as much from the company side, more down to the individual. So the the good advisor, the good salesperson will do that and will follow it through. But often, as we've already said, you know, in terms of managers sort of running the desk and, and putting out fires, there is not always the time or the focus on actually following through on somebody's personal goals, personal development. You know, there is more down to the individual to actually follow through themselves.
0: So what's the, the consequence of that?
1: The consequence of that, I think, is that people, they'll go into their area. You know, If they are a top performer, they'll carry on being a top performer until they leave. If they're in the middle area, they will probably find it harder to move out of that middle area to the top performer. And if they're in the, the lower area, then they will more like to stay there and either stay within the company or be moved on and uh, look for a job elsewhere. The consequence is a lot, the status quo carries on rather than people that have the capability not actually being pushed to fulfill their potential.
0: I mean, that strikes me as being terribly wasteful.
1: It can be. So, you know, there is a lot, I say, a lot down to the individual. Again, in a large advice team or a large sales team, it's easier for people to stay within that area. So it does depend on the individual manager, the ethos of the company to actually enable them to to drive through that. And I've seen some, some great successes with companies where they have actually built up a very good system of giving people different responsibilities, different roles within the sales team. They can actually then say, well, actually, yeah, you may not have been the best at that particular area, but look what you can do here, transferring your customer contact skills, giving them confidence in that area, and then bring them back into the advice area, which then gives them a, a fresh look at it. So it does actually, it can actually help people keeping them within the organization but again, the top performers are the ones where you're probably going to have the biggest impact and they are still generally left to their own devices to carry on being top performers.
0: Why would people leave what appears to be a relatively safe environment and within the larger institutions and then go independently?
1: For some, it will be the fact that they can see themselves, you know, they, they recognize that they aren't good at their job. They enjoy the customer contact. They enjoy the analysis and coming up with a, a solution to help a customer. And so people will leave to go independent to do that because they can actually see, yeah, I can make a living on my own and actually, looking at some of the numbers, I can make a very good living, better than I am in, in an organisation perhaps. So again, the top performers, they can go and do that. Others could be down to frustration. There are a lot of rules and regulations within the industry anyway, but then you add on top of that a company's own rules and um, parameters then there can be some frustration which will cause people to leave and try and do it on their own as well.
0: If you were advising somebody who was going independent for the first time, what would you suggest their first 120 days needs to constitute in terms of behaviour, planning, prospecting?
1: In the first instance, they're going to need the backup. So need or make sure they've obviously ticked all the regulatory boxes and have the, the backup of what to do with the business once they've actually got the business in. But Assuming that's in place, then the, the focus has to be on a little bit of everything every day. So where's the prospecting? You know, How many hours on prospecting? How many hours on interviewing customers? How many hours on following things through and chasing the paperwork through and actually bringing the deal to its uh, successful conclusion? So it's just really breaking down the day, breaking down the week into what are your numbers? How many prospects? How many approaches? How many contacts? How many first visits? How many sales? And, and how much servicing to do? So goes back to the old adage or the age-old process of the, your, your ratios of what you need to do day in, day out to succeed. And it's uh, knowing your numbers and actually following through every week.
0: Again, that strikes me as the basic cookbook behavior and having a plan. Yeah. Uh, the plan never survives contact with the enemy, but it's the planning that matters so that you're prepared and you can track your performance. So tell me this then. We talked when we were originally discussing this around uh, social selling, and I'm curious why there isn't more use of social selling within the industry, because Mm -hmm. it can be extremely effective if it's used in conjunction with physical follow-up by telephone and through email to a lesser degree. But I'm curious, why hasn't the industry really grabbed the bull by the horns on social selling?
1: I don't know. Most of my work over the last three or four years has been with the larger institutions. So I guess their form of social selling will be what's on their corporate website and attracting customers in that way. And certainly every customer that actually accesses the corporate website to have a look at eligibility tools and calculators and what products might do for them will get a follow-up. Whether that's from an advisor or whether that's from somebody else will be another matter, and there's certainly a development need there. But um, as far as uh, independent advisors go, I don't know. I don't know how much they do actually use the social networks. You, know, you certainly look at LinkedIn, and there's a, a lot of scope there for actual advertising your wares and where it goes from there. I don't know. So I don't know what your experience is been talking with the sort of people you deal with,
0: Marcus, on that one. Again, it's pretty poor, to be honest. Only a tiny proportion of people do it well. There are lots of people who dabble at it and then say, oh, this doesn't work and stop. I would definitely advise people to get training. There's a lady called Sam Rathling, who I would definitely recommend. who's fantastic at uh, helping people to use LinkedIn really effectively, and using it to build pipeline, create engagement, build awareness and familiarity and to build credibility within mm-hmm. the space of a, a subject matter expert, and people seek them out. Certainly in our business, we did just shy of half a million uh, last year off the back of our purely our LinkedIn activity. It was relatively effortless. You know, we'd probably put in maybe half an hour to content production, maybe another hour a day to outreach and follow-up. That generates somewhere between 8 and 12 inbound inquiries a week, of which fair proportion because of the size of my network are out of territory. But there's a good, steady stream of qualified, quality uh, leads coming through off the back of that. But that's a, a long game. Hmm. People have the patience to play that.
1: And I think that's the, the lifeblood of the independent advisor. It's going through the numbers, going through your planning, and actually working out what you need to do on a regular basis. And I think as an independent, you can play the long game. As a, a large corporate, then you're looking at results year on year. But the individuals within those companies can play the long game if they find themselves in a role that they enjoy and they can actually see development and there is the, the structure and the pay scale to allow them to develop, then it can work very well.
0: Well, it strikes me that they're missing a huge trick because the cost of pursuit, and are there any stats in terms of what typical cost of cost per lead and cost of customer acquisition is within the industry? I know there'll be a range.
1: Because they've all got their, their own individual websites and you know, they get a lot of customers coming in, they get a lot of people coming to them, then, they, again, the larger institutions don't tend to have to go out and actually find new prospects. You know, they've got, a, they've got a large customer base already and they've got a big enough name and a big enough presence that actually people will come to them and then they can be picked up on that sort of cycle of whether they're just interested now or whether they actually phone up or come in to see somebody.
0: So those aren't really qualified prospects. Their suspects are on a fishing trip.
1: Yeah, and it's how do you turn, you know, how do you actually, when somebody is actually just looking around the market, and I think open banking is going to have a, a huge impact on that going forward as well. You know, how do we actually take a somebody on that fishing trip and actually encourage them to come and join us and have a conversation with us that will last more than five minutes?
0: I was at one of my hospitality clients yesterday, and, they now have a forecasting accuracy variance of half a percent. And in order to do that, what they've spent a lot of time doing is spending time on disqualifying, halving the length of their sales cycle. And Mm. that's made them more profitable, more efficient. They're able to do twice as much with the same or uh, even fewer resources. And it struck me as particularly wasteful where organizations aren't thinking like that. The other piece that goes with this is that they spend so much of their time trying to be all things to all men rather than niching and really concentrating on that segment of the market. And as a result, when they've done this, they're able to cross-sell and upsell. That was the next point I wanted to ask about, is, if you look at the typical advisor within financial services space. How much money is being left on the table? because they fall in love with one or two products and then they rest Mm. when you're unsold.
1: I think, Marcus, there's still an awful lot of um, money being left on the table. You know, I've done a a lot of work fairly recently, in fact, on just that, where you look at actual a case study from a customer and talking it through with a group of advisors, what would you have sold to this particular customer? Where are the opportunities? And they'll come up with a whole raft of different things and how they would have actually got into that particular conversation. And yet, when we look at the actual results, it would be the, the product of the day is the only one that's actually been sold or the only one that's been recommended. So yeah, that, that still is, is very prevalent. And I think where the focus is from companies, and there's a couple of companies I've worked with where they have looked very closely at their sales process, and they've cut down time, they've cut out things that are more for their benefit than the customers, and where they have done that, they have seen cross-sales increase well, it increased quite dramatically from what they had in, in the past, and all of a sudden it's sort of got rid of any glass ceilings that were there, and they now see what they can do just by actually focusing on the customer, focusing on them, and sort of engaging them even more than they had before.
0: This then comes to the question of how organizations are training their people, because what I've found working over the last 15 years, uh, training small businesses to very large corporates, is that what salespeople have a tendency to do is they concentrate on talking about the product mm-hmm. and doing a proper pain diagnosis and selling the entire portfolio. When I realized that I could get away from talking about sales training, it virtually never comes up in one of my sales calls. We talk about their business, their aspirations, their plans, the gaps, and so forth. I'll typically end up selling sales training, management training, recruitment training. I'll uh, do consultancy around compensation, career pathing, onboarding. There'll be leadership training and enterprise sales, channel sales. And that turns every account into a marketplace. Now, I realize that a lot of these institutions are selling to individuals or couples or families. There's the entire corporate market that we haven't even touched on. And I'm curious, how does someone move from being an independent who sells to individuals to selling in bulk to institutions or corporations?
1: That's a really interesting point. My work is um, with the individual advisors and the sales managers. So we're talking about the same things though. In a typical advice call, you know, if there was a, a two-stage process where stage one is the fact find and stage two is the presentation, you know, within the first stage, you're not going to mention any product at all, because it's just purely finding out where things fit. And then the presentation, you'll then show how certain products can meet that. So in my head, it wouldn't be any different. How how do they move? I don't know. I think it's whether they have the entrepreneurial impact or want to move into a certain area, want to change their focus. But no, I've not seen much of that from my experience at all, actually, Marcus.
0: Interesting. It strikes me as a good opportunity for both of us, to be perfectly honest. There have been so many... Negative stories in the press about misselling, poor salesmanship. What would you advise somebody who's considering getting into financial services sales, in terms of managing their own behaviour and making sure that they stay on the right side of the line?
1: I think in terms of managing their own behaviour, it's. Uh, I think a lot of it is recognizing, you know, recognizing yourself and, and what you're actually good at, and looking at a typical interaction with a customer, what do you need to do? Being Really focusing on good questioning, good listening. Staying on the right side of the line It's just it's the right skills to really focus on the customer, but you've got to have the attention to detail to be able to satisfy regulation, satisfy the know your customer, make sure you haven't missed anything. So it's having a good structure, not just good intentions, but a really good interaction with somebody that actually enables you to get to know them find out from them and assimilate all that information a lot of what i see from some advisors is great intentions and asking all the right questions they've got all the information they need but sometimes they can't assimilate all that information and then analyze it to produce the right result for the customer so a lot of customers sort of leave at the end of that first stage of the process because the advisor hasn't translated what they've understood and what they've gathered into a meaningful outcome for them.
0: Again, this is not just financial services. A lot of salespeople seem to have no goals, no plan and no discipline. As a result of that, what they tend to do is fall by the wayside very quickly. The emphasis is on selfish selling rather than the customer experience. And this is certainly becoming a very popular Subject within sales enablement, but people really misunderstand it. In my experience, when people talk about customer experience, they're normally talking about customer service, dealing with complaints and um, that kind of thing, rather than having the customer front and center in everything that you do, because your business exists because of the customer, not in spite of them. Too often, I think that's forgotten. So tell me this in summary, what are the top three or four behaviors that Really makes the difference between an A player and pretty reasonable B player?
1: Behaviors would be um, persistence, just keeping going, making sure that you do follow through on your plan, whether it's your personal development, whether it's the numbers, and actually talking to people. Questioning, and within questioning, listening comes into that as well. So, you know, questioning is all about listening, assimilating the information, and then being able to ask the next question. I often talk to the people about questioning and you only need one question, that's your start point and everything else falls off the back of that. So yeah, persistence, questioning, and I guess the the personal management, the desire to actually do a good job, they would be the top three behaviours for me.
0: I would add to that, I think, listening, which you've already mentioned, but genuine listening requires you to pay attention. Attention is a currency. The challenge that I see is that salespeople tend to hear with happy ears, and they tend to gloss over. And when it comes to questioning, they're afraid to dig deep. They stay at the intellectual. And as a result, the prospect's uh, response is, meh, you know, there's no differentiation there. Intent is really important. Having the intent to help and find a win-win or no deal, and again, you're not there to try and convince the customer or the prospect. Your job is to diagnose and help them convince themselves that mm. they want help. Because yeah. Trying to convince somebody who doesn't want help is essentially pushing rope uphill. Another yeah. element of this, I think, is discipline. They need to do the right behaviors consistently over time and mean it. And too often, what I've seen is that salespeople in every discipline have a tendency to go at something for a while, their motivation wanes, they're not resilient, they give up, and then they move to the next shiny object. I think consistency, doing a little and often in terms of prospecting. Yep. Don't do a lot, so much so that you hate it, and then put it off again for another three months because then you will suffer from feast and famine.
1: There's a slide I use very regularly in terms of um, focusing on the process and focusing on the customer. You know, And how can an advisor move away from their process to truly focus on the customer so the customer understands they're focusing on them, and that's where you get great advice. When they, when you can move away from the process, you ask questions that make the customer think, and then you be quiet and wait for the customer response and then build on that rather than the yes-no questions, the closed questions, the short answer questions, all of those that lead you to fill in your fact fine, but not actually show true intent and interest in the customer, as you just said.
0: One of the really interesting bits of research I read, it must have been about 10 years ago, was that the average length of time a salesperson can keep silent when silence enters the conversation is 0.6 of a second. Now, that's a travesty because when you pause and you let the customer paint their picture, tell their story, they will tell you how to sell to.
1: In every case, we all like talking about ourselves. So just allow the person to talk about themselves and talk about their situation and how they want things to end up. After all, they're in front of you. Nobody likes to be be sold to, but everyone does want to buy something and they wouldn't be talking to you if they didn't actually have uh, identified a need themselves or want to buy something.
0: Absolutely. Well, on that note, I think we should wrap up. Nick, could you give your contact details and how people can get hold of you by phone, by email, website?
1: You can contact me via LinkedIn or on telephone number 442207 or email niches9000 at gmail.com.
0: Excellent. Nick, thank you very much. It's been very enlightening and really appreciate your time. Thanks, Marcus. Pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Look forward to speaking to you again soon on the Inquisitor podcast. Bye for now.